Good day. You're tuned into Free City Radio. This is the 34th edition of the podcast. It is Tuesday, the 23rd of March. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thanks for being with us today. Have to admit, uh, it's spring in Montreal. That changes a lot. The sun is shining. It's um, changing the feeling, although many of the struggles of the pandemic continue. And today, I wanted to start uh, the podcast with a conversation I had with Mei Chu, uh, who is a community organizer and an activist. Um, Mei is a founding member of the Progressive Chinese of Quebec, uh, which is an organization that has been uh, challenging systemic racism and specifically anti-Asian racism for many years now. They are one of the forces that came together this past Sunday uh, for a protest downtown to protest systemic racism and speak out and to remember the victims of the shooting in Atlanta. Today I spoke with May about the protest, the issues involved, the particularities of the movement against systemic racism in Quebec, but also um, how that's connected to issues all around the world. Uh, I should note one really uh, important gesture and important symbol um, that we could see during the protest on Sunday was May, uh, who we'll hear from in a moment, one of the main organizers, wearing a, a face mask uh, for the pandemic, of course, uh, but with Law 21 crossed out on the mask. Um, that is a discriminatory law here in Quebec that tries to enforce what people working in public institutions should or should not wear, particularly targeting um, people who wear the hijab or wear a turban. Um, there's been a very strong and sustained community movement against Law 21. Um, and so we, we also speak about that. But the focus, of course, first is the protest on Sunday to speak out against anti-Asian racism and systemic racism. So here's the conversation with Mei Chu. Um, well, actually, one of the questions that many journalists ask us is like, is, well, uh, why isn't the Chinese or the Asian communities more active in opposing um, racism? And uh, actually, with this demonstration, I said, well, we are being more active. Um, you know, I mean, we've just lived through a year of COVID confinement. Uh, and what I, what I uh, often say is that, like, especially at this moment in time, um, we're able to see the light at the end of the tunnel with respect to the medical COVID emergency, right? Um, now we know exactly what kind of prevention measures uh, to use. Um, hopefully we've started to address all the failings in our healthcare system, especially with respect to elderly care. Um, and of course the vaccine has been rolled out. Uh, and we hope to see that, you know, all the horrible other, like the secondary effects, uh, the discriminatory effects, et cetera, of the COVID um, pandemic would also be lightening up. But instead, what did we have this week? We had um, a Korean man being pepper sprayed uh, on the plateau. Um, and that was followed a few days later by the news of the, um, of the misogynist anti-Asian uh, um, shooting in Atlanta. So it, it, for us in our eyes, it was like this, pan this um, um, racist pandemic is only getting worse. And so we had to do something um, more assertive than just 
supporting each other through uh, through virtual chats, um, making Facebook posts. Um, I We really felt like it was time to take to the streets and be very visible and demand action uh, mm -hmm. from uh, people in power who, who have the ability to um, help us to put a stop uh, to hatred and racism. Well, you know, um, one thing that was clear uh, and, you know, has been in cl clear uh, in your work for a long time, May, is that um, that rejection and that mobilization against racism, it's um, uh, a systemic analysis. Um, you know, many politicians came out to speak uh, um, about the shooting in the Atlanta, even the U.S. president. Um, but there was a lacking of addressing the more systemic issues that I know your work has focused on and also the tone of the uh, protest on Sunday and the speakers were addressing those issues. So um, could you uh, share with us um, that, that uh, point of like understanding and, and that critique of uh, systemic racism as opposed to the way that politicians have been framing their opposition and their addressing of this incident? Mm -hmm, of course. Well, number one, um, we have to understand that after entire years of anti-racist, uh, sorry, anti-Asian racist attacks, like all over North America, um, uh, you know, we cannot say that each one of these attacks, each one of these verbal assaults, each person who was spat on, each person who was pushed or punched or whatever, that all these were examples of isolated incidents. <laughs> um, these attacks happened in the context of a worldwide pandemic, happened in a context of white supremacy, happened in a context where, uh, you know, a white supremacist president uh, insisted on racializing a medical emergency. Um, it happens in a context, of course, of geopolitics uh, where, uh, government leaders are, are, are um, positioning themselves uh, for a trade war with China, um, where our own Canadian government is complicit in that with the continued detention of Wang Menzhou. Um, and within a, 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 in, in the context of a province where the provincial government continues to deny that systemic racism exists, um, passes Bill 21 uh, in his first year of mandate in order to remove rights from entire class of people living in Quebec, um, refuses to apply basic, uh, you know, the principles of Joyce in order to assure that every person on Quebec soil will have access to proper health and uh, uh, health care, regardless of their origin, regardless of their personal protected charter grounds. Um, and so we have, you know, we, I, I don't believe that you can fight um, racism in just uh, like a targeted exclusive way uh, because overall government policies, overall laws uh, affect everybody in a transversal way. Um, and that's why if we, when we're looking for solutions, we have to look at the global context the, the, the and, and the systemic context uh, of the world in which we're fighting for our rights. Could you share some of the, um, some of the ideas, some of the speeches that were um, um, spoken on Sunday, because I know that there were so many thousands of people there. Uh, it was a, just an amazing protest, but 
you work so hard to put it together quickly with friends and, and, and activists, but it was hard, hard for people to hear some of the speakers. What were some of, in relation to what you've just brought up in terms of systemic analysis um, of opposing all forms of systemic racism, what were some things that came up in terms of the speakers on Sunday? Oh, we had so many various uh, speakers. Um, we had, uh, um, so for example, we, ha uh, we had a speaker from the Filipino uh, uh, groups um, who spoke about, you know, the global war, the, more like a, yeah, the, more like a, the global war, um, uh, which is uh, imperialist in nature, which touches as much people in the Philippines as people of Filipino descent in Quebec through uh, continued exploitation of labor, um, sexualized exploitation of people, of, of Filipino people's labor uh, in all categories of employment here. Um, we had a Korean uh, woman who had the courage enough uh, to speak about how the killings impacted on her uh, personally, but also impacted on her community. Um, uh, we had somebody, uh, uh, Stephanie Germain from Hoodstock, who made a super inspiring speech about uh, solidarity and comradeship and how important it was to fight together. Um, we had a speaker talk about Bill 21 and the importance of abolishing it if we're going to address systemic racism seriously in Quebec. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there were so many amazing, oh, we had also a speaker from uh, the Quebec Senu Lucy, um, uh, 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 Thibault Camara, uh, who spoke about the impact of the COVID crisis on, uh, on Quebec residents with precarious status or temporary status. Um, and so we were able to make the, the links between the larger issues. And also I think the only way to really uh, mobilize and fight racism is um, to stop fighting in silos, mm -hmm. <laughs> because like mm -hmm. I said, there are overarching government mm -hmm. policies, laws and practices that touch everybody. And so we really, um, I, like my dream is, has always been a convergence of, um, of struggles. Yeah, and, and everything you've mentioned just highlights the difference of how you, uh, as a member of Progressive Chinese of Quebec, addressed and responded to uh, the shooting at, in Atlanta um, in such a different way than mainstream discourse uh, has responded to it, uh, which really um, tried to present it as a silo issue that you're... you're, you're that you've described. Um, can you talk a bit about that difference of how, you know, I mean, your organization, Progressive Chinese of Quebec and, and other groups of Asian diasporas are, are thinking about and responding to this um, in, in, in contrast to the mainstream response? I think the mainstream response um, in, or in mainstream media, people look for, uh, really easy, simplistic ways to understand the tragedy. Um, and I think that if we want to find a solution, if we want to prevent future tragedies from happening, we have to step back and, and, and take a look at how, if, we wanted, if our goal is, is to do prevention, we can't do prevention without knowing what are the causes of these, uh, of these events, of, um, 
you know, of what happened to George Floyd, uh, George Floyd of what happened to George Akashwan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so I think that as activists, as people struggling for, uh, for social justice, um, it, it's, it's, we have a duty and responsibility to keep to keep calling out the causes of oppression. Uh, and like I said, um, in the beginning, the shooting in Atlanta happened in a, an extremely complex world. <laughs> uh, and, and, and we can, you know, of where there is a geopolitical context, there's a historic context, there's a context of multiple uh, systems and forms of oppression that have been happening from for so many centuries um, in the context of in a completely colonized um, Americas. Uh, and um, so in order to, yeah, in, in order to, uh, to address the solutions, I think, I mean, I, you know, I, I know that when um, I give interviews, often people just cut out like 99% of what I say and they yeah. just want that two second sound bite. Um, and I think that if we continue to do that, uh, then we're just perpetuating the conditions which uh, are ripe for future tragedies. Thank you for sharing all that, May. Um, going back to the point about uh, the ways that the pandemic uh, has really fueled white supremacy and anti-Asian racism, you mentioned that at the beginning of our conversation. I'm just wondering if you could highlight um, that um, issue a bit more and the importance, you, you talked about uh, systemic racism in Quebec, um, the importance of um, structures of power recognizing and naming what is happening in regards to the pandemic fueling um, anti-Asian racism and the urgency of this issue. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um... So the question, specific question is. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, is, no, I'm wondering if you could um, um, talk about the importance of uh, in the context of Quebec, because there has been um, not just, you know, one or two incidents of, you know, racism directed at, at the various Asian diasporas, but there's been not really an acknowledgement of what's happening from, from power, mm -hmm. um, which is something that the protest on Sunday was addressing, was, was calling out that systemic racism, but also that in the context of the pandemic, there has been a ri rise of anti-Asian hate crimes um, and attacks and racial abuse, um, which doesn't really seem to be presented mm -hmm. in the mainstream media of Quebec, at least as the urgent issue it is. Yeah, yeah, okay, I understand. Um, you know what, I have to say in Quebec, um, e even talking about, or even the word racism, or, or having the, 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 the ability to speak about racism safely is a relatively recent phenomena. Um, you know, I'm in my 50s, and I, you know, I've been um, doing social justice work in Quebec like for decades mm -hmm. uh, and for most of my life um, we weren't allowed to speak about racism right <laughs> we weren't allowed to speak about colonization because oh it was the, it's always the French minority that are who are the oppressed people um, and I remember that anytime that 
uh, we would try to speak about racism, uh, the, the first reaction was like, oh, how dare you? Are you saying that we're worse than what happens in Toronto or Vancouver? Are you Quebec, Quebec bashing? Uh, what, do you, what are you saying? So we were really stifled um, uh, and, and there was no freedom to do this. Uh, and so um, for me, the turning point was uh, happened around the Slav controversy um, when the black community took to the streets and dare to take on Robert Lepage, like a Quebec star icon and accused him of cultural appropriation. And I know like I have friends who were uh, personally smeared like all over, all over the media um, uh, for, uh, for doing this. Um, and it took time, but by the end of the year, and actually it took, uh, I remember clearly, it took the boycott of, um, I think a rap star of Quebec, uh, sorry, uh, 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 because I think that there was a festival that was supposed, an international festival, maybe it was a jazz festival that was supposed to be happening. Um, and when the word of uh, cultural appropriation in Quebec occurred, um, there was um, a, a black performer from the States, I believe, who said that he was gonna boycott Quebec. And so that changed the entire, the entire tone um, of the controversy. And by the end of the year, uh, we were allowed to speak about cultural appropriation and negrophobia um, and then uh, so forth and so forth. And so, so, so I really thank the black community for having um, made the space so that today we're allowed to speak about racism. Uh, and, and, and so we're just starting to talk about racism publicly. Um, there's still a lot, lot to go in term, it, it, with respect to understanding the different forms, the different manifestations of racism. So, for example, um, microaggression, cultural appropriation, um, Orientalism, you know, the N word, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then on top of that, racism um, interlinked with other multiple forms of oppression. So it's a very uh, complex subject to, to speak about. Uh, and I think that one of the reasons why um, there's uh, an ignorance of anti-Asian racism is, is a fallout of our general ignorance <laughs> about what racism, what constitutes racism. Um, so, so I think that that's one of the biggest challenges uh, to putting anti-Asian racism on the map. Uh, and then the other challenges that unfortunately, uh, especially due to anti-Asian racism, we have really horrible stereotypes of the Asian minorities in Quebec. Uh, that, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're docile, uh, we're, we're, we're not troublemakers, we don't ask for our rights, um, uh, we don't protest. Uh, and so, so people perpetuate these stereotypes about, you know, Asian women being compliant and, uh, and, and we don't make trouble, like we're hard workers, we're all good at math. Uh, and yeah, you know, we've been, we've been uh, nicely just chatting on social media, but we're, we're not the type of people who would go out and take to the streets and demand our rights. Um, and so we're hoping that the march on Sunday, uh, you know, destroyed quite a few stereotypes. How did it feel to be at the march? Uh, I have to say I was overwhelmed. I was, um, 
extremely happy. Like I said, we're expecting like 300 people. And in the end, I think uh, the estimates were between two to 3,000. A lot of allies who showed up like yourself, um, for which I'm very grateful. Um, uh, and, uh, and also like even, even more are all the younger and really diverse members of the Asian communities, uh, Vietnamese youth, uh, Korean youth, uh, so uh, you know, Filipino youth, um, many many Asian youth uh, who were there, and also um, not just um, uh, what do you call it cultural diversity of the youth, but also um, I would say the the the, the other uh, other forms of makeup, like you know, a lot of um, adopted children, second generation uh, children who are bicultural, biracial. Mm -hmm. uh, so just 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 the unity of so many diverse examples of the Asian this uh, community in, in in Quebec who got together to fight racism was uh, I was so inspired by all of this. Respect. And can I just add? Can I just add that? I really want, I'm very, very grateful uh, to Stella for taking the lead and organizing the vigil for the, uh, for the slain um, women uh, in Atlanta. It was not something that we took on, um, but I think it worked really well. Um, the fact that we had the two actions one after the other. For people who don't know what Stella is, could you just uh, share briefly? Um, it's an organization that defends um, the rights and, and um, um, gives services uh, to sex workers mm -hmm. um, and, and, and sex workers in all their diversity. Mm -hmm. And uh, the rally and the vigil were collaborative on Sunday, which was really awesome to see. Yeah. Um, yeah and the singer that canceled uh, their performance at the jazz festival is Moses Sumney. Uh, who actually uh, refused to perform uh, due to the systemic racism um, um, that was um, expressed uh, by various cultural institutions in Quebec and what you've mentioned, May, about the so play, I don't even know what to call it, but this um, Slav uh, play um, that was protested by Black Lives Matter and many groups. Um, Thank you for mentioning that. Actually, uh, Moses Sumney did uh, two events at Sala Rosa um, um, after canceling at the Jazz Festival. So that was good to mm -hmm. see. Um, it's really great to talk with you and, and hear uh, your reflections and uh, hear uh, from you about some of the ideas that went into the protest on Sunday. Um, I think a lot of people went, that was really great. Um, so maybe just to end, um, what I, I, I was really struck by a decision that you made, May, um, as one of the lead organizers to wear um, your, your mask for, for COVID, but you had um, Law 21 crossed out. Uh, it was one of the anti-Law 21 masks. Um, could you talk about that decision and, and how you see the, I mean, you've, you've addressed it already, but quickly just why you made that decision and why it was important for you? Well, very quickly, um, I wanted to send out the message that a government that dares to pass a law, a racist law that discriminates and takes legal rights away from an entire class of Quebecers can never have the legitimacy 
or the, the willingness or the good faith to put an end to racism, no matter in what form, no matter against what, uh, what class of people, what, which minority. And so that's why um, um, I think that uh, if the government um, wants to claim that is taken leadership in fighting uh, racism, uh, actually one of the demands of the organizing committees was the abolish, abolition of Bill 21. Start with that. Give all Quebecers back their equal rights. Thanks for taking the time to speak today, May. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you always. and to see you in the, in the streets, especially. Of course. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That was May Chu, um, who is one of the activists who organized the protest on Sunday in Montreal. Um, May works with Progressive Chinese of Quebec, and uh, they hosted this really um, moving uh, demonstration on Sunday here in the city. This is Free City Radio. This is the 34th edition. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. It is the 23rd of March. Thanks for being with us. And to follow up on this, I wanted to play a track from the uh, classic and awesome activist music collective Asian Dub Foundation uh, here on Free City Radio.
That was Asian Dub Foundation here on Free City Radio. Thank you for being with us. Next, I wanted to feature an interview that I did with Nandini Sundar, uh, who is a professor of economics in Delhi. Nandini has been speaking out about the injustices that are taking place in India within the context of the populist Hindu nationalist government, BJP government. Um, I heard about Nandini's work through India Civil Watch, which is an international organization of the Indian diaspora that has been uh, working to draw attention to these um, very important points of crisis in India. Uh, We talk about the moves to try to corporatize the farming sector in the Punjab region of India and also in other regions. Uh, in the ways that farmers have been sustaining an incredible protest movement against this attempt uh, to push towards a more corporate model of agriculture in India. We also uh, talk about the movement against uh, what was called the Citizenship Law, uh, which is a a law that actively discriminated against non-status Muslims within uh, the borders of modern India. Um, So all these issues are detailed and I think uh, the conversation really brings them together in a meaningful way that is hard to get a sense of when looking at headlines about India. So I spoke with Nandini, uh, who is in Delhi, here on Free City Radio. We'll go right to that conversation. You know, there are several aspects to the farmers' protests. The most immediate is uh, the fact that the government uh, does not consult stakeholders when it pushes through laws. So increasingly, we've seen a very authoritarian style of lawmaking um, where, uh, you know, almost overnight um, laws come in and uh, when people protest against them, then there's a lot of repression, imprisonment, and so on. So we saw this uh, in Kashmir when Article 370, which uh, was a constitutional guarantee of autonomy for Kashmir, was scrapped and the state was uh, made into a smaller, less uh, autonomous union territory. And we've seen this now with the farmers' protests where, um, you know, The farmers uh, of the country have for a long time been asking for agrarian issues to be debated in parliament. Uh, There was a huge march uh, a couple of years ago uh, with farmers from all over the country asking that, uh, you know, at least that there should be a special session of parliament because uh, India has seen agrarian crisis on a very severe scale uh, for a very long time now. We've had a number of farmer suicides. motivated partly by um, high debt, Um, you know, and these debts are actually not very high by any objective standard, but for farmers, um, you know, being indebted uh, for, uh, you know, even say uh, 100,000 rupees, which is, um, you know, I'm trying to sort of do the translation. So it's not very much in or even you know we've had cases of farmers committing suicide for 30,000 rupees which is really nothing right Um, and any bank could forgive that loan but um, or should forgive that loan uh, given that they're forgiving the loans of you know uh, the non-performing assets of huge industrialists Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, part of the agrarian crisis is due to the pushing of 
green revolution technology, hybrid seeds, uh, fertilizer, etc., which is then, you know, led to a cycle of uh, diminishing soil uh, productivity, low returns, and um, people getting into debt because they need to, you know, uh, either repay these uh, inputs on credit or for family uh, functions and so on when, um, you know, agriculture is just not productive. Uh, so this is a crisis that has affected different parts of the country in different ways. Mm-hmm. Now, the Punjab uh, crisis in particular is, um, again, of long standing because um, because of the green revolution technology, a large part of Punjab has become saline and uh, actually toxic. There's quite high rates of cancer. And at the same time, the farmers in Punjab, because they get uh, a minimum support price for wheat and rice, and they are sort of the most prosperous um, uh, farmers in terms of having years of technology and using that technology to buy tractors um, and so on, they're actually, you know, the better off farmers in the country. Uh, So they have been protesting because these new farm acts would, um, one, take away uh, local state-controlled agricultural markets and open it up to, um, you know, private players. And we know from other states where uh, we don't have these state-controlled agricultural markets that, in fact, Prices that are offered by private uh, players are very low and they really are not remunerative at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second worry is that this would open up farming to contract farmers. Uh, So, you know, um, having these big agribusinesses come in and um, it's not outright uh, sale of their land, but it would basically reduce them to labor uh, on their own land for crops that will be decided as part of a global value chain. Um, And the third um, uh, reason why they're also protesting, which is something that should affect urban consumers, is the abolition of the uh, Essential Commodities Act, which would in in fact increase um, food prices for the urban poor as well. But unfortunately, the Modi government has been very effective at actually keeping down, um, you know, news about the farmers' protests. I mean, it's... uh, there is news coming out, um, partly because of the Punjab diaspora and um, because, you know, it's hard to keep such a huge movement down. But if you look at the space in the Indian media for these issues, there's almost no coverage of, you know, given the scale of and the longstanding nature of the protest. Mm-hmm. And um, they've also kind of reduced it to a Punjab specific issue instead of looking at it as a larger agrarian crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've really been quite um, successful at sort of trying to tire the farmers out. It seems like there um, there's a process here in the Punjab that has been happening, which sparked these protests about the imposition of um, policies that we've seen in other states. Uh, just to break this down in terms of some of the excellent points you've been mentioning, um, given the fact that there has been I, I, I would imagine an intergenerational struggle to have the conditions that have a bit more dignity for farmers in the Punjab. Um, uh, creating a context where um, corporations can come in and, and almost create landless farmers on their own land. It, 
how does that mirror situations that we've seen in the past in other states and just sort of in terms of viewing the the policies as a process of actually dis, of actually displacing communities um so there's you know what i think one of the interesting things about this protest is that you have a range of people both the you know the very elderly um farmers who have this sort of deep attachment to the land and also young people for whom it's become a larger uh, as you said fight for dignity and um, one of the most interesting things that I came across was this, you know, they have they started this uh, print newspaper called Trolley Times, uh, which is run um, by young people. And one of the editors is a dentist who actually, um, you know, left her job and started this Trolley Times. And uh, uh, they realized that a lot of the older people, um, you know, aren't, aren't digitally savvy. And so that's why they started bringing out this uh, print newspaper. And I think... Um, you know, regardless of the professions that Punjab uh, Punjabi youth have gone into, and the army is a big um, sector which employs uh, people from Punjab, mm-hmm. uh, they all have some connection to land and farming. So there is that yeah. sense of both an identity, uh, an, a farming identity, mm-hmm. and a desire not to, you know, um, be the kind of hard scrabble farmers that you see in other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for that context. Um, so you had mentioned at the beginning of our conversation the ways that um, the new farm farming act um, around land reforms and also around uh, subsidies for different crops, which I mean is is con- connected all the way back to the first governments of. Uh, post-colonial India, um, which, um, you know, is also an important point. But um, just in terms of understanding these series of laws, you mentioned Kashmir. Uh, There's also, of course, the um, citizenship law, uh, in quotations, of course, uh, that was imposed uh, last year. Um, Could you talk about this trend that we're seeing happen in terms of the imposition of laws uh, that fundamentally change a lot of the social political character of Indian society? Uh, Yeah, this government is actually uh, sort of, you know, rewriting the constitution and subverting it from within. And um, its aim is, has always been very clear to establish a Hindu supremacist state. And uh, many of the laws that they're bringing in are about um, sort of directly putting Muslims in their place, uh, in their place, quote unquote, and mm-hmm. um, also, you know, trying to elevate um, not just Hindus or Hindu religion, but uh, their own people. Um, you know, if you look at the kind of way that cases have been dropped against many of their people, so the whole judicial apparatus, both the making of laws. Mm-hmm. And the functioning of laws has been subverted um, to benefit them. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the laws that they've passed or the policies that have been passed to um, which have been done without consultation, the most glaring and the first one was demonetization. Um, well, actually, it wasn't the first, but you know the major one that really affected the whole yeah. country uh, was 
basically overnight declaring um, all high currency notes um, illegal. So, yeah. you know, people lost their savings, uh, women especially who'd hidden little sums of money away from their husbands, uh, you know, to have some autonomy, uh, found that they now had to either fish it out and sort of reveal their hidden stacks and um, uh, many lost whatever they had. And it caused huge crisis, unemployment, uh, destruction to small scale industries and so on. Uh, you also had the goods and, goods and services tax, GST, which was again, very badly managed and which was uh, very difficult to operationalize for a lot of small businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, then this year or last year during COVID, uh, lockdown was declared uh, with for, a for our notice. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, people were just told, uh, given no warning in terms of stocking up on food or, uh, you know, going home. So we, workers were basically just thrown out of their work um, overnight. And we saw huge migration then um, of the scale that the country has not seen since partition, perhaps. Um, people yeah. walking thousands of kilometers, small children crying. And, uh, you know, it was just the most awful humanitarian crisis. And our judiciary was really uh, grossly uh, unsympathetic and uh, brutal because, uh, you know, when uh, civil society activists asked um, that the government provide fair wages and uh, the chief justice then asked, you know, why they needed wages when they were getting fed. So, you know, the idea that soup kitchens were a substitute and, you know, soup kitchens are the most basic variety. People were really starving. were a substitute for, you know, being employed and having fair wages is just shocking. Um, And the government refused to run trains for them. um, And, uh, you know, now, uh, if you look at election rallies in Bengal, they're actually running trains to bus people to their, or trains to get people to their rallies, but they couldn't, you know, they weren't bothered with running trains to get workers home. Wow. Uh, so that was another example. where so the shut, shutting down of work. But yeah, just shutting down work in four days, in like four hours, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was another example. And then, you know, the abolition of uh, Article 370, um, reducing Kashmir to uh, union territory, uh, shutting down the internet, uh, and you know that's been the longest internet shutdown in the world um, of a whole state during lockdown when children had to do online classes. Uh, you know, medics had to access medical information to deal with COVID, and uh, it was difficult for them. So, um, you know, we're talking about like complete destruction wrought on a whole people, on a whole society, and on the other hand, just relentless um, propaganda polarization, communalization, telling people that they need to be scared of Muslims who were spreading COVID allegedly. Uh, So it's just been really, um, you know, winning votes on the back of money and communal propaganda. So organization. Oh yeah, and and the CAA as well. I forgot you mentioned that. I'm sorry, I forgot. That was a huge uh, problem as well because, uh, again, that's completely you know the idea that you can give citizenship to people from three specific countries, um, and leave out Muslims from those countries. I mean, you have the so it was couched as something that was about, um, you know, giving 
helping refugees who were being persecuted in neighboring countries, right? In which case you should have given citizenship to Ahmadiyya Muslims who are persecuted in Pakistan, to Tamil uh, Hindus who are persecuted in Sri Lanka, uh, but those were not in the category of people who would be given citizenship under the Citizenship Amendment Act. So it was a completely communal uh, act designed to show that Muslim citizens uh, ha- are somehow less equal. Well, on all these fronts, it's, um, you know, just just to mention in the Canadian context, I mean, the government here, liberal government, uh, has been sustaining an ongoing um, negotiation with the Indian BJP government around an economic partnership agreement. But, you know, in, in the press, we, we don't see any actual analysis of, uh, about a lot of like a lot of the measures that and laws that are being opposed, but as part of a continuum. So I really uh, appreciate um, what you're outlining about the BJP government and, and pointing uh, to the social movements uh, that are responding to this um, extreme uh, populist right-wing uh, uh, situation. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak today. Thank you, Stefan, for asking me. To... Yeah. Thank you. That was Nandini Sundar, uh, who is a professor of economics in Delhi uh, and is connected with many social justice initiatives uh, around uh, movements in India fighting for justice and equality. Uh, Nandini works uh, in collaboration with an important organization I would encourage everybody to check out called India Civil Watch. This is Free City Radio. Uh, This has been the 34th edition. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thank you for uh, joining us weekly. We come out with a new episode every Tuesday. Please subscribe if you can. Uh, You can find us on Apple Podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, give us a rating. And also, um, please encourage any friends to uh, listen and link up with this effort. Uh, it's an effort of community, of um, independent media. I'm doing this uh, to try to share voices and, and movements that I, I feel are really important for us to uh, consider uh, in these long format interviews that are beyond the headlines. I wanted to go out with a piece that I worked on with my brother, Jordan and our friend Joseph Sonacondro. This is a trio piece um, from our collective called Anarchist Mountains Trio. This was released uh, by a small uh, label in Sofia in Bulgaria uh, called Amek. So this is uh, a piece called A Free Palestine Dream here on Free City Radio. We'll be back next Tuesday. Take it easy.